0: Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mark Buell. Uh, We're new here. I can still say that. My wife and I, Amy and our two boys, Nathan and Christian, uh, just moved to Holland 11 months ago. Uh, We love it here. Um, We're so encouraged to be here with this church. I'm just, I'm not sure I really feel like I need to preach anything. The way that God was lifted up and Christ was raised... Our Savior was magnified, even in the teaching of the children. We're just so thankful to be here. Uh, people often ask, how did we, after we moved, how did we find Ventura? Actually, just as of Friday evening, I was taking the train back from uh, Chicago to here. A woman sitting next to me, uh, she was a believer, and they just moved to Grand Haven. And she was asking about finding a church. And she said, how did you find Ventura? Uh, I said it was basically because of two men. There was Mr. Google, and then there was our pastor from our previous church. So when Amy and I decided to move, we started researching the internet about finding churches that had the same heart that we did, doctrinally aligned, you know, we liked the colors of the chairs, whatever it was. and so we did our research, and our pastor said, well, let me, let me help you. I, I kind of know some people, and I'll do some research. And so he went off, and we came together, and in God's providence, both of us just said, well, I think about this place, Ventura Baptist Church. And we started listening to uh, some of the podcasts. Uh, I, we were just excited to be here, and uh, still are. So I want to thank you for being a faithful church. Just, um, I want to thank you specifically as just, you know, recently Amy's father passed away and I just appreciate the cards and the prayers that you all have, uh, provided and encouraged us with. It's, um, it is a rarity and it is an encouragement to see a church that actually values prayer and lifting up other people and, um. So we're very grateful and thankful for being here. Uh, Again, just real quickly, I have two boys, Nathan and Christian. Nathan, uh, I think you've heard, he's been up here singing. He loves to sing. Uh, Christian is in his senior year at uh, Northern Illinois, uh, getting a degree in special ed. Um, My mom is here also. Uh, She tends to just follow us. I mean, everywhere we go, she comes. Uh, So... um, Well, before, kind of an introduction there, but before we dig into God's word, um, we want to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit for whatever he says. Um, So let's uh, pray together. Good. Father, we praise your holy name. You are awesome, powerful, all-knowing, the creator of, of heaven and earth and all things. Now, when we consider the works of your hands, the heavens, the creation, history, we have to wonder what is man that you care for us, that you are mindful of us. Father, we thank you uh, for the blessing of your word that you have provided that for us as not just simply a guide, but your truth, your wisdom to us. I thank you, Father, for this church. I thank you for the gathering of us here at this time in history. You've chosen us to be here to witness your glory. I pray today just um, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged. I pray, God, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, convict us, show us where we've gone astray. Father, I pray for other churches around the globe and uh, in the Holland area, I pray that your gospel would be proclaimed boldly and unapologetically, and that people would turn to you, Father, submit their lives to you. I pray for myself, God, I pray that you would just um, get me out of the way. Father, I pray that uh, you would give me wisdom and discernment and clarity, and yet, Father, not as Paul said, that it is not with any wisdom or words of eloquence, but, God, with a demonstration of your Spirit's power. And finally, I pray, God, that if there's anybody here who does not yet know you or perhaps has strayed and has forgotten you, I pray, God, that their souls would be encouraged. I pray that you would move in their hearts. I pray that you would convict them and help them to see that they need a Savior And only you are that Savior. And Father, it's in uh, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our main point this morning from Romans 14, verses 1 through 4, is in light of the mercies of God and the embrace that we have from a welcoming God and a sustaining power, we as believers need to live transformed sacrificial lives striving for unity and peace in the body. I'll kind of show you how we got there. Um, Now, I'm an IT guy, so I like outlines. I like bullet points. Um, So let me kind of take you where we're going to go today. We're going to to look at, how did we get here? I think you've probably heard this. Context is everything. Secondly, what does God in this passage tell us to do or not to do? Third, why? And then we're going to wrap this all up and go, so what? What's the big idea about this passage? So, how did we get here? Um, Now, I'm not sure if it's because I'm older or I'm male or I'm just quirky, but I often need to have a review of where I've, where we've come from before I can get going on something new. And we've had a couple weeks and breaks, and so um, if you indulge me, I think we're going to kind of just do a real quick review. So, now I know we've been going through Romans for the past year and more, so. Uh, please don't take my review to be a summary of all that we've done. Otherwise, we're going to be here for a very long time. So let me run through some of the things that God brought to my heart as I went and looked at this passage. So Romans chapter 1, God brings it forward and clear and says, you know, the Gentiles are in need of a Savior. Chapter 2, the Jews are in need of a Savior. Chapter 3, just to clarify, we all need a Savior. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then halfway through the chapter, Paul brings forth this incredibly concise and clear statement of the gospel that it is apart from the law now, God has made another way that we might be reconciled to him through his son, Jesus Christ. Our faith in him, through the propitiation and the redemption, we all now may have salvation chapter four we get into the life of abraham who was credited as righteous before the law and apart from the things that he may have done chapter five we have peace with god we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand chapter six we're dead to sin alive to god so how are we going to live are we going to live as slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness And then Paul takes us into chapter 7. Oh, the wretched man that I am, I don't do the things I want to do that I should do, but I keep doing. There's this battle raging within us with sin. And then chapter 8. Oh, the glorious Romans 8. There is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is living with us to give us life in our mortal bodies also. Chapter 9, Paul longs to see this salvation for his brothers, the Jews. Chapter 10, he tells us, you know, the salvation is for all. When we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and confess with our mouth that he's risen from the dead and that he's Lord, we may be saved and all who call on his name. Chapter 11, the Lord keeps his promises. There will be a remnant, yet all the Israel are going to be saved. The Gentiles are being grafted in. It's because of the sin of Israel, the Gentiles. Oh, how does this all work? Oh the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God for from him and through him and to him are all things we turn from a little theology to now to application of how we should live in the church Romans 12 it is by the mercies of God right that we should now live as sacrifices and chapter 13 takes us in in light of that how should we live towards loving our enemies and the authorities And he ends chapter 13 with this powerful statement of, wake up, put on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and make no provision for the flesh, and gratify its desires. Now, just on a little side note, do you ever wish you were around when Paul was writing? Did the man ever take breaks? Did he go out for dinner? Did he do something? Because I got to tell you, at the end of chapter 13, that strong statement of live in the light, and make no provision for the flesh. And then we get into chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to. Where did we just go? Well, I think if you look back at chapters 12 and 13, you'll see that he was focused on how sacrificial we should live, relating to others, our enemies and our government. And he's now turning the corner to how we as a church should live together. Now, if you take a little context again, the, the, the church of Rome was a mixture of Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. So you, you got to imagine that there's a little bit of, I don't, I don't know, if it's a strife or just confusion, different preferences, different standings, different backgrounds. And so I think Paul is bringing us to this point and he's detected there's some inclination of disunity coming in this church. Now, this the first chapter, verses 4, 1 through 4. Now, I would have loved to preach on all of chapter 14 because it encompasses not only these little bits, but it also takes us into how we should live and give ourselves up for other people. And it's all about the Sabbath, though. We could spend a long time preaching about the Sabbath and so on and on. But verses 1 through 4 are kind of the setting as we move into the rest of uh, chapter 14. So with that, If you would, please turn with me to Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Let me read. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. For who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So now, as we look at what God is specifically telling us we should or we shouldn't do, this First part says, As for those who are weak in faith, welcome him. So we, as transformed, sacrificial, living Christians, should welcome those who are weak. This begs the question a couple questions, actually but A, who are the weak and why are they weak? And two, what does it mean to welcome them? So let's look into who are the weak. Now, the Greek text. It's slightly different. It's in, in our English translation, I think it's only the King James that translates it, but in our translation, as for the one who's weak in faith, the Greek text actually has an article before the word faith, meaning it says, for those who are weak in the faith. So with that as a translation, we can, we can pretty much rule out the fact that this is not about physical. This is not about somebody who is weaker physically. Um, so... This is one who was weak with respect to faith. The second thing, this is probably, the commentators generally agree, that it's probably aimed at the Jewish believers inside the church. Now, that doesn't mean it's only, but that seems to be the common thread. Paul helps us understand, or at least he helps define a criteria of the weak. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, we could have a lot of fun with that, um, but I'm not going to go there. Um, But it's interesting. So in this particular context, Paul is defining the person who is weak who is abstaining from meat. So why would people be abstaining from weak, from the meat? Well, there's a couple things, and there's a couple... um, You know, when you study scripture, it's kind of like I I could kind of get off on this tangent for quite a while, and unfortunately I probably did, but let me see if I can't sum it up here. So, after we came out of Romans 13, verses 14, Paul says, Make no provision for the flesh. So, one thought is that these Jewish Christians have decided I'm going to abstain from meat to keep me from gratifying desires. I don't think that's really right. I don't think that's consistent. I think, um, you know, Pastor Timothy a couple weeks back. I thought he was very transparent and authentic about. He felt um, that he was going to take a break from social media because he felt like that just was not a good place for him to go, and it was making no provision for the flesh. And he doing. I don't think we would consider that weak. And I don't think Paul is aiming at that perspective either. So, second option is. Um, Maybe these are Judaizers in there in the sense that they feel like there needs to be something else attached to the gospel. Jesus and you need to be circumcised. Jesus and don't eat meat. And later in Romans 14, he'll actually talk about abstaining from drinking wine as well. So don't eat meat, don't eat wine, hold the days of certain days, and it's it's Jesus and I don't I don't think that's it quite either. Paul is never hesitant to come boldly before somebody who has a thought that is anti gospel. I mean, we see that in Galatians. Oh, you foolish Galatians. And he goes through that in the first part of Romans. Paul just leaves this alone. He actually really doesn't deal a whole lot with what the meat eating thing is. So I think the third thing is that these are probably people who elevate. The Old Testament rituals, and they're kind of in bondage to, I just can't get out of this old thing. And we sang this morning, the old is gone, the new has come. Yeah, okay, the old thing's gone, but just, I I got this little part here. I'm going to adhere to the Old Testament rules. Colossians 2.20 says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? It's somehow that these Christians were not able to accept for themselves the truth that their faith in Christ implies liberation from the Jewish ritual requirements. Let me say that again. Their faith in Christ liberates them from the Jewish ritual, but they're still hanging on to the old. 1 Corinthians 8 talks about food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we eat. We're no worse off if we don't eat. I think Paul is trying to communicate this is not a matter of authenticity and faith. This is not like these people don't believe in God that can do things. They probably pray just as fervently as anybody else they attend church. This is not a matter of authenticity. I believe Paul is challenging that they have a deficiency in faith. So what does it mean to welcome? We are to welcome those who are weak. Now I could probably try to pronounce this Greek word, but I'm not going to bother. The word welcome means to take by the hand, to welcome to home, to receive, to bind and welcome affection, tenderness. Uh, in Acts 28, chapter, uh, verse 2, where Paul is shipwrecked on the island of Malta, it says that the natives welcomed him. It even also is used when Peter grabs the hand of Jesus and takes him aside to confront him. This idea of bringing somebody with you is what that word welcome means. Now, there's a right way to welcome, and Paul is kind of clear on the wrong way to welcome. Let's be positive. The right way, right? So pursuing Jesus together, you have all said that. That is the right way. We long for people to come to our church and be part of our body to welcome them so that they would pursue Jesus together so that they would ascribe greatness to God and treasure him above all things. The wrong way, Paul says, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Again, if you think about the mixture of Christians at that time, the Romans and the Gentiles and the Jewish, you can imagine there's... But really, do we do this? You welcome somebody to quarrel? How are you... I just need to talk to you about something. Do we really do that? Okay, don't leave me up here. Yes, we really do this. Uh, Romans 13, he talks about, he lists this idea of quarreling right up there with all the other things at the end of chapter 13. Quarreling is highlighted as a sin. But yet, notice, what we are actually quarreling about may not actually be a sin, either restricted or not right we are to live sacrificial lives but sometimes the biggest cause to disunity in our church in our churches and Christendom is quarreling over things that god didn't command or not command for us to do so uh for the sake of honesty in church um, My wife and I attended a a, a large church in the Chicago suburbs for mm, 18 years. And um, unfortunately, to my shame, there was a point at which I realized that I was more proud of my church than I was the gospel. I would invite people to church because I wanted to have them see the right way to do things. Mm, Sunday school versus small groups, pews versus chairs, see my preacher. I know that you have some convictions, but let me, why don't you come to my church so you can see how this might be, this quarreling. And then when they would push back and they would say, I don't agree with that, then somehow my voice would automatically raise and get a little louder about the topic. We are to welcome people not like that. We are to welcome them and accept them the second point those who are transformed and living sacrificial lights do not judge others who hold different preferences now I say that but let's re- realize that Paul is not talking about the fact that I like blue and you like green it's a little deeper than that so Verse 3 says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. This word despise. So the NIV translation is pretty weak. It says, don't look down. Now, this word actually means mock or ridicule, reject with contempt. Acts 4:1 where the apostles challenge those who have rejected Jesus as the cornerstone. Luke 18 this is where the Pharisees and the tax collector and the Pharisee says, "Oh, I'm so glad I'm not like him." This this contempt. Okay, so strong believers are those who are free in their liberty and understand what Christ has done for us. Why And how do the strong despise those who are weak? Well, as I spend some time confessing and uh, examining my life, I think sometimes when I look at somebody who holds, not necessarily a sin, but holds some standard that I see as either foolish or is a little bit more restrictive than I think it ought to be, I realize, I wonder if they're sometimes a little more devoted or committed or more zealous. My faith kind of becomes insecure. I then puff myself up and go, you know what, it's because they're wrong. I don't like people who are wrong. I often found myself thinking it was more important for me to be right than to be righteous. Let not the strong despise the one who abstains. And then he turns the coin on the other side and let not the, the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Passing judgment, we often use this term, you know, don't judge somebody. And I, I think that's just, we overuse this term. This idea of passing judgment is actually very serious. It's dooming somebody. It's, it's denying them salvation to an extreme. It is condemning and censoring it is taking on god's role that's not us so again if we look at on this side of the coin the weak why would they judge someone for choosing their liberty that they feel free in christ to do well i think sometimes we they often look at those who are strong and have liberty as rule breakers They have no sense of conviction. They don't take God's commands seriously. They're loose, carnal Christians. So we are to welcome the weak, and we are not to judge others on their preferences. Finally, in this section, Paul brings up the fact that we as transformed sacrificial Christians do not play master of others. If we read verse 14, 4a, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And we got to love Paul. He, he, all through the book of Romans, we see this this element of almost sarcasm, right? Who are you? Um, what should we say then? Well, obviously, the answer is implied that you are nobody. Um, This word servant is not bond servant that we often see, but rather an employee paid servant. Paul turns the corner a little bit. In the previous verses, he was talking about judging actions. How quickly do we turn now to where Paul is taking us as we judge the person? Quickly we get from, I don't like the fact that they don't watch movies. I think it's fine to watch movies. Who? I just don't like them. I don't think they're good. I don't think they're right. I don't, all of a sudden we've just turned a corner over to judging the individual person. The Pharisees on confronting Jesus and his disciples when they were eating grain and all this confronting. If we turn over to James chapter 4, verse 11, he says, and I'll just read it to you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and actually judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law. You're actually a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Colossians 2 backs it up and says, Don't let anybody pass judgment on you in question of food or drink. Then he goes on the second part of that, and he says, it is before his own master that he stands or falls. Again, this this word master, lowercase, uppercase, it probably applies to both in our world that we live in of, of our employers, right? I, With all due respect, a lot, appreciate all your input, but you don't pay my salary. Okay. Don't judge me if I do a bad job because you still don't pay my salary. This idea of standing in favor or falling out of favor. Yet I think we can't go here without missing the point that this is also has an eternity principle behind it. This is obviously talking about the master that we all serve. There is only one master. And he is the one who is able to make a stand, meaning make a stand in the end day, as well as today. It's only before him that we stand or fall. I don't stand and fall. As much as God has blessed this church and other churches, men and women of wisdom, and able to articulate things, I don't stand or fall before you, and you don't stand or fall before me. But why? Who are you to judge other people like? That's not the case. Right? So Paul commands us that we should welcome, we should not judge, we should not despise. Let's talk about why. So if you were to read this passage, um, and you kind of notice that when I was going through those verses, I kind of left out some of the ending of each of the verses. We could read this without 3B and 4B, if you will, of those verses just like we would hear it today um, my father who I love dearly passed away six or seven years ago um, he graduated from Lutheran Seminary but yet later in his life he turned to be an ardent atheist don't know where God may have grabbed him at the end but his favorite saying, one of his favorite sayings was to each his own if that man wants to eat steak let him eat steak that person wants only broccoli, let them eat broccoli. I mean, what's the deal? Why should we not judge people? Because it's a nice thing to do? It has some societal benefit to it? As a Christian worldview, one would expect that we're kind and nice. If you're not careful, you'll see the outcome of behavior And you'll interpret that as to the why. We often do that. We see this behavior that we should do, and we go, oh, well, look at the results of this behavior. Therefore, that's why I should do this. Paul brings out two reasons why we should not judge or why we should welcome. Two of them. One, because he has welcomed us. And secondly, because he will make us stand. So let's look at the first one. Because God has welcomed him. Now, in, in the sentence structure of this uh, verse, uh, it ends in the last part. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Now, the, the, the sentence structure is there, comma. That could be the weak one we're talking about, so he's welcomed a strong one. But most commentators agree that this can be contextualized to both the weak and the strong. But Romans fifteen seven, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I think um, one of the things that I've been so encouraged about being at this church is how gospel centric. Everything is that we do here, from the message to the songs that are chosen. Um, it's, it, you couldn't walk in here without knowing what the gospel was. And Jesus Christ died for our sins. He had led the perfect life. He died the perfect death. He raised from the dead to atone for us. And at the same time, we also know and see and are told about this glorious day that's going to happen when we join him together with no more pain, no more sorrow. But as I examine my life and as I think about some of the churches, I think sometimes we forget the gospel, sometimes in between. The reason we should behave in the way that we should behave is because of the gospel. Not because we're nice people, not because we want to impress people, but because of the gospel, one critical part of this gospel is that God welcomes us. Let me just read a couple passages. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and, and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. The father, when he sees him, says, bring the robe, fatten the calf. Let's celebrate. Clearly a picture of God. 1 Peter 3:18 Christ died for the righteous as the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. John 14:3 If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, where I am, there you may be also. John 14:23 If we obey his commands, it says that God and Christ will actually come dwell with us. Isaiah 40, verses 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, gathering the lambs in his arms and gently lead those with the young. Think about this. Why should we not judge or despise? Because we have been welcomed. As we, I think it was actually said earlier. We didn't bring anything to the table. I'm not so gloriously endowed with something that God would want to welcome me. The precious loving God has taken us by his hands and received us as sons and daughters. He received us as sons and daughters because of Christ. We have nothing. We have nothing to merit. Now, if you don't know Jesus, I want you to catch this. Do you understand that this, there are so many things, so many writings about who God is and attributes, and he's an ogre, he's the religions for this. Do you understand you need to grapple with this fact that God is a welcoming God. He doesn't long for any to perish. But also take this, that scripture is clear that he welcomes those based upon Christ, not because of some general amiable God that that just, I, I welcome everybody. Well, he welcomes everybody to Christ and then he welcomes them home into his Second reason, God welcomes us, but God is also to make him stand. The second part of the verse is, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld. Why? For the Lord is able to make him stand. 1 Corinthians 1.8, it says, The Lord will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 34, who brings a charge against the elect? Jude 24, something we often read at the end of a service, him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. John chapter 10, 27, 28, I give them eternal life. No one snatches them out of my hand. Philippians one six. I am confident of this: He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Romans five two. Through him we have obtained access by faith into which we stand. God is able to make us stand. But who are you to judge somebody else? It's God that's going to make him stand. Why do you think you cannot make him stand, or? Why do we think we have something to contribute to that person standing? The answer, again, is we don't. Now, I don't know how this all fits together, but as I was thinking through this about two weeks ago, I wish I'd sent in an email to, to the church because I, I had a song that I was really hoping we were going to sing. Let me just read it. A little bit, because sometimes when we sing songs, I know for me, I kind of get into the melody and I forget what it is. So I'm just going to read a passage from it and let's see if you can recognize it. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my life, he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight, he will hold me fast. So I think Todd and I could agree that I didn't come up to him and say, Hey, could you guys sing that song? We Just go with that. So one of the things that I also was challenged by is that um, God is going to hold us fast eternally. (laughs) But even though sometimes people judge us or we judge others, we need to realize that um, my standing before God does not change based upon someone judging me and their faith in Christ does not change based upon my judgment or assessment of who they are. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 says, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by anybody else. I do not even judge myself. It doesn't make me, he says, does not free me from things of are guilt, but I am judged by the Lord. John 21, one of my favorite verses is that, so when Jesus confronts Peter and says, do you love me? And if so, yes, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. And then they're done with that. And then the next part you see Peter and Jesus walking, the disciples are walking away. And Peter kind of goes, uh, Hey. What about him? And Jesus says, almost in tune with Paul, what is that to you? You follow me. We are not to judge others. The reason why? Because he welcomes us, because he makes a stand, because of the gospel. Now, this would be wonderful, uh, and, and I hope it has inspired, and um, I've enjoyed the digging into this passage. But we gotta kind of wrap this up. And one of the things that we need to ask is so what? What is the manner of our lives in regards to these things? Do we merely wanna be, as James challenges us, to be hearers of the word and not doers? Do we want to be like that man that looks in the mirror, walks away? I kind of forgot what I looked like. The point of that passage, while kind of comedic, is that there was no impact. So so what about this passage? So let me challenge us in two areas. One is individuals. Let me just ask a couple questions, and these are questions I was Asking myself, is there someone whom you have despised because they are holding a tighter standard than what you think is biblically true? You need to repent. I need to repent. We need to go to that person and apologize. Secondly, brothers and sisters, are there things that are not specifically commanded or restricted, that we have elevated to be equivalent to God's word and God's truth and things that he's telling us to do. So when, um, in a previous church, men's life groups, small groups, whatever you want to call them, um, I have a personality that I, I, I can tend to get wound up about things. I can get kind of torqued up about And... Um, sometimes often about how things and I would prefer that they go this way and they don't. And uh, oftentimes one of the questions that we kind of had as a staple for being asked amongst the men's group is, is God worked up about that as much as you are? Are we elevating things that God has not elevated to a place where he's not elevated it? And as a result, are we judging those who are not adhering to those things that we've elevated? Again, we need to repent. We need to go talk to those people and clear that. So finally, as as we know that the wonderful thing about scripture is while the letters were written to churches, it's written to individuals who make up those churches. So individually we should ask those questions. Collectively, we as a body, even to a and I, I'm not presupposing anything, but I'm just gonna ask the questions. Are we a welcoming church? Do we embrace people when they come in to help them pursue Jesus together? Are we lifting them and bringing them along with us to encourage them to grow, even though we know that they may have a different set of standards, either historically, traditionally, or whatever? Are we welcoming them with pure motives, or are we welcoming them so that they can see what, now, there's nothing wrong with rejoicing in what God has done in our church, and I think we should, but nonetheless, it's a question that we as a body should ask, and is there ways that we can do that better? So, in summary, in light of the mercies of God, the embrace of a welcoming God and his ability to sustain us, we need to be transformed sacrificial believers, striving for unity and peace, not by judging others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, God, we are weak. We need you. We need your word. We need your spirit. God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for your forgiveness when we fail. Thank you for the encouragement, and we pray that we would live out this. God, forgive us where we've judged, forgive us where we've despised, but Lord, help us to pursue Jesus together and to love one another in a way that honors you and ultimately brings you glory, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Let's go home today and this week, reflect on the words that God has given to us this morning. And cry out to him, which is the mark of a believer, constantly asking him for help with every single day of our lives that he would intervene and give us the grace we need to overcome sin, to repent, and to worship him. You and I need that every day. So hear these words and worship the Lord today. Worship the Lord with family and come back and worship the Lord today with the church as we have our picnic time. But hear these words.